Hello. Welcome, everyone. This is the Ontolog Forum again. It's uh, March 1, 2007. Today we have the, our invited speaker, Dr. Tom Gruber, who is going to give a talk on grant challenges for ontology design. Since we have more than 20 people, we will skip the self-introduction segment of, on this call. Let me briefly introduce Tom, who probably needs no introduction to this community. Tom is the, the ex-Stanford researcher and computer scientist who defined the term ontology as we use it in artificial intelligence, computer science, and the semantic web today. The rest of Tom's bio is, again, on the page. So uh, without further ado, uh, Tom, take it away. Okay. So uh, thanks, everyone, for showing up. And I know that there's a lot, there's a lot of asynchronous listeners, too, and I'll try to uh, speak slowly and clearly for you. But for the folks that are live, let's make use of the fact that this is live. This is really kind of the new world now of, being able to meet without having to get on planes and so on. So please interrupt you, me. I don't care. I have no. I love it when it's a dialogue. Great. So where we what we're going to do today is go through um, a couple of different threads of ideas. And and the idea the, the basic goal is to figure out uh, see if we can identify um, kind of a a guiding purpose for what the heck are we trying to do with this ontology thing. And I was kind of trying to not take it too seriously, because if you do, then you miss the point. And I was trying to come up with a title, and I thought, you know, what are the, what's an example of something where everyone carps about the words a lot, and, and they turn out to be the wrong words? <laughs> and, and the example that comes to mind is in front of us every morning when we go to Starbucks. Because if you notice when you go to Starbucks, the smallest cup is called tall, and the largest cup is called Vente, which most of us don't even know what it means. And, and the middle one is called Grande. And Starbucks isn't even an Italian company. It's a Seattle company or whatever. So the words are completely wrong from a kind of getting it right point of view. On the other hand, Starbucks you know, has essentially created a, a world hegemony in coffee, and it's unbelievable, overnight. So it clearly didn't have much effect on their, uh, on their success. What's interesting, though, is the reason why the words are still wrong is because Starbucks standardized them very early on. And their standardization of not only the language, but there's a whole dial, there's a whole language of how to order coffee there, but also the processes that go around that. And that is, in fact, key to their success. They're basically McDonald's. They're, they're a highly organized thing. Now, that's sort of an interesting example of... We could spend an awful lot of time getting it grande, vente, tall, whatever, and never ever, ever make a nice company out of it, never have any impact. On the other hand, if you look at the lessons from that, it wasn't a coincidence that they were stuff. Well, maybe we can have look for similar kind of principles when we do our own work. So that having been said, let's go to, let's go to uh, slide two, uh, which is the first substantive slide. And this will give you a sense of where we're going today. The, the talk today is really about kind of three questions. Um, I mean, pretty foundational. What the heck are ontologies for? Uh, why would we bother doing anything with them? And I don't mean to give an answer to that, but I really mean to raise the question and maybe to provoke some alternate perspective on it. Um, the second thing is, 
um, as it logically follows for me, once we have a kind of sense of what we would do, why they're there, then we, ha we ought to start thinking about how we would guide the direction in, of their development in a, in a sensible way. Like, what, how would you make a good one versus a bad one? And although it's kind of cart before the horse, the third part of the talk, and the bulk of it, really, is what are the kind of driving application challenges that will, um, can tell us what, you know, how to guide our activities. All right. So let's go to slide three. On slide three, then, let's get started on the talk. So the question here in front of us, why make ontologies? And I literally, I think, I don't know if Nicola Guareno is here right now, but I remember like 10 years ago, we were at a conference in Italy, uh, and we were, I think it was outside of Venice, and we were talking about, we had, you know, all about, you know, ontologies for the future, whatever it was. And I had the good fortune to, I think it was Barry Smith. I know he's on this group. It was a wonderful time. Here we are in, in, in an old part of Europe. Um, and we were pounding our fists on the table over wine, talking about the truth and whether Aristotelian truth was the better way of thinking of ontologies or not, which, of course, is the kind of thing you'd want to do um, over wine in an in a ancient restaurant in Italy. However, it isn't necessarily what we want to do with our day jobs all the time. And, uh, in fact, I, I think we get, an awful, we get kind of caught up in the, the, the sport and fun of figuring out whether a particular way of carving up the world is the right one. Um, whether it's a beautiful one or it will bring us, whether, whether it's mine or yours, you know. Uh, these are kind of false motives. And, and if you think about it, if you think of ontologies as, as kind of software specifications, which is the way I've always thought of them, then it really doesn't, there isn't any notion of truth. It's, it's truth relative to what you're trying to do. It's not only really truth, it's choice, representational choice, relative to what you're trying to do. So if you think about these same questions, why make ontologies, and you just say, why make software? You wouldn't, those questions don't really make, the first two don't make any sense. I'm going to make software because it's the true, it's the correct, or I'm going to make software because it is beautiful. I mean, some people do. Um, and a lot of people think they're making software for fortune or fame. But if they're doing so, they're not usually making, uh, you see the analogy that you might end up doing it for the wrong reason. So if you go to slide four, then you can ask the same questions again, not just why even bother doing the work. This is a little bit more substantive. How would you know if someone else said, I want you to use this ontology, or I want you to join this group that's making an ontology, or I want you to um, uh, fund me to do an ontology? If they can't tell you what makes a good one in a way that's satisfying to you, then, then we're kind of in in kind of shooting ourselves in the foot. So, for instance, truth and beauty doesn't really make sense, but you'd be surprised how many people will say that popularity is what makes a good ontology. Uh, for instance, my website has 15 million clicks and yours only has 12 million. Or commercial success. Well, this is the ontology that was used in Amazon or whatever, and therefore, it, you know, if I'm so rich, I must be smart, okay? Which is a, a real metric for web uh, evaluation. question is, is it good for ontologies? And I would claim, you know, obviously not. Um, I think what's more relevant is if we look at ontologies as a technology, then we can have a slightly more objective uh, unless um, emotional response to evaluating them. And that would be slide five. So if you look technically, I, I, could, I tried to boil it down to the, like, objective, neutral, what statements. What, what are the heck are ontologies for? And they're really for just, I can only come up with two things. Uh, the ontologies in the sense that we've been talking about them as specifications for the purpose of knowledge sharing or information sharing. And the... The first one is, of course, to enable systems, whether they're services or data exchange or applications or whatever, 
that you know enable you to have information exchange without having to share the actual low-level API. In other words, a specification at the semantic level. And that's, of course, the foundation of semantic web. The second thing is, in fact, using ontologies as essentially a kind of intellectual property onto which you could build more systems. So all these upper ontologies and so on, frameworks, uh, basically where someone has thought through and has understood the pragmatics of the choices and has get, you know, proposed something that we can just build on. And the key thing, though, is that if you take these, if you buy this, if you buy these perspectives, the conclusion is that they are really, it's fruitful to think of ontologies as enabling technologies. And therefore, there's nothing about an ontology in itself that has value. It's only in what kind of applications could it enable. That's where the source of value is given to an ontology. Okay. Now, slide six, then, is my claim about this. And if you take this, if you buy this whole perspective, and uh, the argument is that ontologies should be viewed as technology. They should be viewed as things that are designed and that their purpose is to enable applications that use them. And therefore, they uh, should be evaluated with respect to those functions. The observation I've made over the years is that, unlike a lot of other kinds of software, these things are actually quite more like social contracts than they are like literally functional programs. In other words, their agreements, in the sense, when an ontology is written in a collaborative notion, environment, their agreements that if we all just, for instance, if we agree that this is the way the, um, the, the genome project data might be conceptualized, then at least we can agree that those are the common things. And when we call, you know, a base pair with this word, we know what we mean by that. And so the question then is, if, if you buy all of that, then it's really a collaborative process for engineering design, whose evaluation function is which, what, what kind of uh, applications can be enabled by the result of the design, that is the ontology. Okay, so let's, I'm going to just, this first part of the talk is really about that, um, you know, ontologies of that perspective. So the second part now, which we'll move into, is what does it mean to be designing ontologies, and, and then what kind of methods are appropriate for this? So in slide seven, we'll just jump right in. This should be not at all controversial for people who work in software or even work in electromechanical engineering, and that is engineering design process, which is in either an iterative or, or a waterfall or some combination of these phases. There's always, there should be always some kind of requirements analysis. Um, there's always some kind of review of existing technologies, components you might use. As uh, my friend uh, Ken Forbes says, you know, a day um, the library will say, uh, a, a, a month in the lab will save you a day in the library. Um, and in other words, there's usually stuff out there you can reuse if you take the time to look. Um, and then after those steps, then we do a design with respect to whatever gaps remain. And then, of course, we design that for application enablement, so therefore there's got to be some notion of implementing and testing and deploying. That's what normal engineering design is. Okay? I, it's, it was radical at the time, whatever, and 10 years ago, whatever, but I think it's still not widely practiced that ontologies can be worked out in exactly the same way. Okay? So I'm going to give you an example um, on slide eight. So I recently uh, reinvigorated this little group called the Tag Commons. We, we actually, tag meaning tag data, meaning these, these uh, user, user contributed annotations 
of things, usually things like that have URLs, that are uh, essentially like a personal index. So, for instance, I might it's like a bookmark with a label. It might say, well, I'm going to collect all the stuff on ontologies under the ontology tag, and and I'm also going to tag collect things that have to do with photos under the photo tag, and there will be some items that have both the photo tag and the ontology tag, and then I'm going to so I'm going to see photos of ontologies if we've ever seen ones like photos of UFOs. But anyway, that's that's the kind of thing, the notion, most of you are familiar with tags, user-centered data. And it turns out there's a bunch of these applications, and there's a, the world is starting to, you know, balkanize on, um, you know, tag data. And and it'd be really, there's a lot of really cool applications that are possible if we could come to agreement on what are the semantics of tags. Not the specific tag names, not like the word book or the word ontology, but the notion, what's a tag. And um, And so we're... We're going through a process that's being driven by an engineering design process. We're looking at use cases and functions, um, and we're then looking at existing ontologies and applications with respect to those use cases, and then we're going to see if, if there's any work to be done. It's, the hypo null hypothesis is that it's completely finished. We'll just adopt one. Uh, and other alternatives is just merge the two that are already there or three. You know, or the third one is like it's not, they really need to be redone completely. But basically, we're, we're applying an engineering design process to the task of coming up with agreements. Actually, ontologies, tag ontology is just one level of the agreements that will enable data sharing among sites that have tag data, user-contributed annotation, symbolic annotation. And what I was just saying is that we've gone through, we're walking through these steps. The difference between the way this process is being run and lots of other efforts is that most efforts of this sort either start with an individual who has a proposal, a kind of a solution in search of the problem thing, or a solution that for his or her problem that now he's offering to the community as a general solution, or it's done in a um, kind of a, a, a standards process, which is you know, slow and cumbersome and tries to anticipate all the possible um, perspectives and so on. Uh, this is just basically more like a project. It says, let's see if we can get this thing done, do it, have it done you know, quickly and cheaply and so on, and, but with practical consequence. The practical consequence is, in fact, the, the dog that's wagging the tail, if you will, as, as opposed to the ontology saying, we're going to make a cool ontology for tags, and then we're going to go around trying to convince people to use it. We turned it over and said, no, no, let's start with what we might do with tag ontology, and then that will ruthlessly guide us in our decisions. And so in slide nine, you see the results of our first phase of analysis, which is we basically said kind of a call for use cases. All right. Folks, you know, we know what tag data are. We're, what, what, what could we enable and what things, that, what things do we really care about as a group that we could enable if we could come up to some agreement on some way of exchanging tag data? And so there, it turns out it boiled down to eight um, eight use cases. Eight is a lot of use cases for any software project, but um, this is a, you know open process, so it is a lot you know a lot of perspectives. But it turns out that they have very very strongly overlapping requirements. So I'll just briefly t touch on a couple of them. It, it turns out that even though there are lots of point to point so-called mashups, which are essentially um, you know point to point API based integrations. Uh, you know, for instance, you might have a someone who makes a program that goes and calls the Flickr API to get photographs based on tags and, and does a string match against tags in this site called Delicious, which is a bookmarking site. 
you know, it's kind of a, you know, introductory undergraduate programmer kind of task to do that. But, of course, it's, it's point to point. It's not scalable to, across the Internet, and it doesn't really, it sort of just reinforces the hegemony of a couple of, uh, of tag spaces. So we would like to do, enable that across all kinds of sites, cross-application uh, joins, if you will, or cross-application integrations. Um, and the trick here is that we don't own the sites. Obviously, if, if we're Yahoo or Google, we could say within our properties, we could make a, a, a strong standard all the way down to the data formats of how to represent tag data, and then we could just impose that because we're a corporation and, and force uh, a redesign, re-implementation of the databases so that the unification, in this case it would literally be a cross-database join, a foreign key join, that would be, in fact, enforceable at the software level. But since this is sort of an attempt to make the Internet ecosystem be this way, it has, it's, we're looking at it more of a semantic level. So it turns out that if you start from the dog of the use cases to wag the tail of the ontology, then the requirements that fall out are shown in uh, slide 10. So it turns out that, to no surprise of anyone, there's really a small core set of concepts. There's a notion of a person who's tagging. There's a notion of what is tagged. This is like the symbol string thing that is used to label it. And most people forget this, but because it's supposed to be a cross source, you have to have some notion of what source it comes from. In other words, you have to have some way of saying that site is called Flickr and that site is called Delicious, which, of course, Flickr doesn't need that concept in its ontology of tag, but a, a sharing one does. You also, um, there are actually usually other things added onto tags, and we had to make a clear distinction that these are auxiliary or derivative. So, for instance, the notion, some, of, some places have a notion of of tag clarity, like you can vote for or against the association between a word and an object. Some notions, some people have the notion of sort of a, a date, so you can talk about recently tagged items or whatever. Those are important, but there's no assumption that all systems will share those core concepts, those concepts. Um, and we also have, then what's interesting about this is that the key sort of meat of the discussion is not like whether there's an owl class called tagger, but really, what is the mechanism, what is the representational non, uh, notion that will allow us to have sophisticated reasoning about identity and matching? For instance, are two people who tag on different sites the same person or not? Or are two labels, one's plural of the other, one is a multi-word with the spaces removed and one isn't, uh, one's capitalized and one isn't, one's in English, one's in Italian? Are, what are the kind of semantics of tags such that you could enable services that can make these non-trivial matching between things. And then, uh, of course, the other thing is there t turns out to be plenty of uh, standards and conventions that we can bridge to, and those need to be mapped in, if not wholesale adopted. Okay, so as I've, in slide 11, I've alluded to, here's a couple of design issues. My point here, and the first one is like, as I said, how to represent people. Um, you could spend the rest of your research career going down the rat hole of how to identify human beings on an open internet way. There's privacy issues, there is uh, you know, identity, aliasing, um, social context for identity. You can go nuts with this, but you don't have to to solve the tag sharing problem, and that's the source of power. That if you guide the constraint, if you guide the design process by an engineering perspective, you are free to actually solve the problem and finish the job by 
saying, well, all we need is just enough to match people. And there are various ways you could attack that. I'm not sure we solved the problem yet, but at least we have a handle on it. And then the other thing about this is it turns out that let's say that one tagging system has dates, the notion of a tag occurring on a date, and the other one doesn't. Well, how do you, in fact, have a semantically meaningful or sensible way of mapping the two? Well, you have to have some kind of a rule that says, oh, by the way, um, unless you have a date, but default is a sort of true for all time, kind of a default world assumption or whatever. They could, Pat would probably know the exact word for that, a non-monotonic logic assumption. However, if we required all systems to buy into some deep semantics of non-monotonic logic, we would, complete, we would immediately fail. Okay? And it's not just because people don't want to get their head around these concepts. It's just completely irrelevant to the task at hand. And so, again, really all you need here is a notion of defaults, a polymorphic relations. For instance, the relation of five arguments uh, maps to a relation of four arguments where you drop one out, that kind of thing. And that's very familiar to software engineering, and it's not controversial. So that's the interesting, there's sort of a mini result there, is that the, you know, the general pretty idea that we should design ontologies actually can can, in fact, have teeth, can have uh, value in helping to make things easier uh, to get our job done as ontology designers. In slide 12, I just want to throw that in there because, in fact, there are, in fact, some software engineering-like principles that we can also use to guide ontology design. And it, I, I wrote these in a little tech white paper like a zillion years ago, and it, and it worked, worked its way through a conference proceeding and then a journal, but I'm not sure everyone has seen this. Um, it, it was an attempt to start out with the equivalence of, you know, software uh, engineering principles for ontology design. And there's a few that are not very controversial, like let's not be logically inconsistent and let's not be vague. But there's also some that have a little bit more meaning. I won't go into them too much today, but the, 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 the sense of this, <coughs> essentially, is the equivalent of, of the aesthetic that software engineers have for minimality. That is, don't, if you're going to propose, if you're going to expose an API that you want other people to um, implement or you want other people to buy into, then be minimal about it. Do not ask them to do things that are not essential to the sharing task. And those couple of notions of that, of encoding bias and ontological commitment, you can read about it. There's a link there. Anyway, so given that there are some engineering process constraints and there's some software engineering sort of uh, technology constraints of this form on how you design things, we ought to be able to get things done. And I would just make the case that that's, this community ought to be doing that sort of work. Um, now, um, it's easier uh, said than done, but in slide three, um, I kind of summarize that this business of being grounded in applications is not the same thing as writing an application first and then saying, oh, by the way, the, app, the, the ontology I needed for the application was this one. Um, it really just means that you do design in the context of anticipated applications. So in the practice, in this little world of this little open uh, tag comments effort, uh, the way we're achieving that is essentially to bring in stakeholders that really have, for real, applications that they want to build or have already built that need the kind of agreements that we're talking about. So, for example, the guy who invented the word folksonomy, Thomas Vanderwelt, he's building a system or has, he's got a prototype going of a kind of a system that can, can grab tags from different tag sources and kind of place your monitoring bets on all those different systems. And he really needs... Uh, a notion of clear 
he needs a comparability standard. He needs some way to say, is that tag like that tag? And he could even use, if he could start out with a trivial one, or not a simple one, and then he, if someone else comes up with a web service that says, well, I'll, we'll deal with pluralization, and we'll deal with translation, and we'll deal with whatever the mappings are, he could use those services. The second thing is the, the web is full of applications that are of the sort of point-to-point API-based thing. As I mentioned, the Flickr and Delicious kind of integrations. It's also full of a kind of a culture which is sort of anti-ontology, anti-semantic web, which is, well, we're we're just too busy to go sit, hang around and blabbing, you know, on conference calls, you know, about ontologies. We've got to get going on build things. And so we're going to build uh, into the existing symbol-level framework of the web uh, ways of representing um, structured data. So instead of having uh, like a you know, with semantic web type approach where you have explicit links to RDF tuples and so on. There's something called microformats, which is a kind of a thing where it basically extending the notion of HTML link to um, point to a tag, in this case, put tags. And uh, so we actually are working with a team. Uh, uh, Harry Halpin is running a, a ISO, whatever, ISO, a W3C standards group called GRRDL, which is essentially a bridge between semantic web and microformats. So he's dying to have this thing done. So when we get when we get a tag ontology figured out, he can immediately branch it to the larger world of microformats uh, tagging. Okay. Okay. So that's the sort of middle bit of the talk, and um, the the point really, of course, is is that um, it is possible to use engineering design processes and approaches to make our life sane in doing ontology design. So the third part of the talk, and really the bulk of it here, is, well, okay, if we're going to be building things that have a function and the function is to enable applications, how do we choose which applications are worth doing? How do we get excited about the work um, and ground it in some kind of impact we might have? And now, those of you who have funding, up, funding, you know, some of you guys run funding groups and you already have a notion, an agenda of what applications you want to enable. And, other folks um, are just simply, they have an application they're building, and some people are more academic and they just want to enable a class of them. All three of these, of us, of those folks, I wear all three hats myself, we can in fact say, you know, it's, it's worth knowing, um, it's worth being motivated by a sort of a grand challenge or a set of them. So I thought a little bit about what that would be. And that, I guess, I'm sorry, I was on slide 14 here when I was saying, I'm transitioning to the question, really, what are the killer apps? What, what is it that would make it so that if some, you know, New York Times reporter goes, oh, well, there's people that do this thing called ontologies, and isn't it a joke? It rhymes with oncology and other things, da, 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 you know. They're looking for a hook. And they're looking like, well, if we just did this thing with ontologies, we could do X. Okay, well, what is the X? All right. In fact, if they go, well, but isn't X already being done by all these, you know, 22-year-old people with scripting languages and PCs, you know, in Lithuania uh, on the web? And, and the answer might be, yeah, but, you know, it might be that there's a, a few of these problems that are big enough and important enough that it's good to build an ecosystem of infrastructure that includes things like uh, semantics, like ontologies. All right, so that's really... Uh, the sort of the, I think the wisdom or the motive behind the semantic web. So that's to slide 15. 
I gave a keynote at this Manic Web Conference this April, and um, my challenge to that community was essentially, um, hey, there's a thing called the social web, and it is really the larger active world right now of, of activity on the web. And the semantic web is not irrelevant, but, you know, we could really, if we combine these two things, we would really have something special. And so the social web, for what I mean by social web, is these kind of sometimes called Web 2.0 companies, where essentially the website is driven by user data. The value of the website is a function of the user data. Uh, so, for instance, Amazon as a bookseller, the value of Amazon as a bookseller is not a function of user data, but the value of Amazon as a review site for books is a function of the user data. Um, same thing with Google. Google as a search engine isn't really a, a collaborative activity, of course, but the fact is that most of the mojo that Google has, most of the, the bias in its algorithm that leads to good results is a function of the larger web's annotation, uh, link structures and things like that that tells Google which sites are worth, worth, worth indexing. Um, now, the semantic web, uh, oh, and by the way, the other thing about the social web is that all the components are uh, free. I mean, the software is essentially free. And that the culture is that these are not proprietary things and that they're not, that, that anyone can use any piece and that the way to win is to make, to give your piece of the puzzle viral carrying process. Properties. In other words, make it a viral carrier of your idea. Now, the semantic web, in contrast, is not really an architecture of participation. It's an architecture of computation. That is basically says, hey, we're AI people or computer people. We have some really cool algorithms and ideas that we could implement, but they, we, just doing them on streams of text isn't enough. We need some more structure there. And that is a, a, you know, that is a real vision. That is a next step for the web. And the value that the semantic web is offering is not that you could make a single expert system or whatever that's smarter than other ones. is that you could take literally the same kind of bottom-up power that the social web gets from user data and say, if we integrated all these data sources, we would have vastly more uh, power in our, in our semantic computation. Okay? And the ecosystem here, rather than being an ecosystem of a bunch of free software that 22-year-old you know, programmers can pick up and use, it's an ecosystem of service composition. In other words, there's a, I mean, this is old news for most of you, but the notion is that the real, the real power of semantic web is that you could, in fact, write services that reason about differences and aggregations and combinations of other sources. I know, for instance, you could match people using FOF, or you could match, uh, you know, tags, or whatever it is. You could match across sites that have different symbol level representations. Now. That's a lot of words, but really the, the, the punchline here is that it, these are not antagonistic. These are not either or. The, um, the thing that drives my work and has all my career is collective intelligence, collective knowledge. And um, I think that is, in fact, the killer app uh, for the semantic web when you combine it with the social web. And let me tell you, uh, there's a phrase I was using, collective knowledge systems. I don't care about the words particularly, but there's some meaning behind them. Let's go to slide 16 to see what, I, what is currently being called collective intelligence by the media and by the Web 2.0 enthusiasts. They're, they love the idea, and of course, why wouldn't you? It's sort of one, it's the big idea of this decade is collective intelligence. 
everything from quote wisdom of crowds to or you know the user contributed you know cover of Newsweek or whatever is MySpace you know funny things like that. Um, today, collective intelligence is being the phrase is being used to apply to things like intelligent collection, like let's get all the bookmarks in the world and stick them in a big pile, or something called that. Uh, O'Reilly calls the database of intentions, which is essentially all of the behavior, of the clickstream behavior of all the users on the web. It's essentially the data they're talking about. And then from the data, various people have come up with some services that are useful. And there's also a notion of the collective intelligence, as in if you go to Google and you ask a question um, and you find that someone else has already asked that question before and there's an answer, that kind of knowledge, collective intelligence. And, uh, if you look at slide 17, it's, it's often characterized by this kind of a picture, which I'll call the wisdom of clouds. Suppose the wisdom of crowds. Wisdom, you know, the notion is that there's clearly some, there's a pony in there somewhere. There's clearly something going on collectively, and there's a huge potential. But I think that the social web is, is just beginning to tap the value of that. And it's the semantic web is the key to tapping that value. So slide 18 tries to clarify what I mean by collective knowledge systems, because this is, in fact, I think the framework or the category of application where doing ontologies will have a big impact. And so a collective knowledge system is, it, it is a knowledge system that provides useful information where the capacity for its usefulness is based on human contributions and it has a, has a positive feedback loop, that the more people use it, uh, the more value it gives to everyone. And those structural properties, in fact, are really important. Now, the, the surface-level features of these things is usually that they have a mix of, of um, unstructured data that comes from humans and a structured backbone of machine-readable and computational data. Okay. Let's look at some examples in, in slide seven, 19. So collective knowledge is, uh, I think, like I said, I think it's the idea of the decade. I think it's real. I think it's powerful. Um, there's at the very basis of it, if you look at anyone building any software today or actually doing any kind of marketing, it's the first, when you have an idea or a thought or a problem to solve, the first instinct is correctly to go to the web and say, has anyone already talked about this before? Because the combination, what I call the FACO-sphere, F-A-Q-O-sphere, the combination of Google, which is a high-precise, high high-recall engine, with the fact that there's a, a essentially completely free infrastructure for yakking about problems and solutions. That's um, produced this thing, that there's usually an answer. And Google scales well enough that you can handle, it can handle these long-tail queries. They call them long-tail. Very, very precise queries about very obscure questions. The other thing is um, uh, there's a book by Gilmore called uh, We the Media. talked about citizen journalism, which, of course, is the notion of blogs. Blogs are having... At least the A-list blogs are having serious impact on our political discussions and other things. And that's collective knowledge. I mean, there, there are stuff coming out of the blogosphere that, would, that the, the, fourth, the third estate, the media, has completely ignored for decades. The third thing is reviews now are serious. Reviews um, of hotels or of technology or whatever are really um, invaluable. You couldn't imagine buying a digital camera without touching the web at least once to get some reviews on something. And, of course, there's other examples. Wikipedia, Amateur Academia, of course, is a, is a key, uh, you know, it's on everyone. It's the top hit on every Google search now. Okay, so let's go back for a second. Uh, collective knowledge, okay, none of these examples I just gave you have anything to do with semantic web, right? They're all using this sort of 
existing social web technologies. What about ontologies in the semantic web? Slide 20. And then transition to slide 21. Well, let's just look, step back, and say, well, this is a technology we're talking about, computing technology, in fact. What is uh, the role uh, of this kind of technology? Well, we have already got there's, there's sort of five kinds of technology layers in, in these systems, and the first four are kind of already solved, like databases and telecommunications. Uh, but the last one is essentially the one that's the open-ended uh, role for technology, and that is how do you create value, how do you harvest, aggregate value from this collective knowledge stuff, okay? So slide 22 gives you a couple of examples. I'll introduce a couple of examples now. So the first one is this tagging thing that I've already talked about, which is essentially you can create value in those eight use cases I talked about. It, you can create value by composing and integrating the tag data that were produced by independently gen, uh, designed and implemented systems across the web. And there's more value in knowing the intersection between tagging data. It could be intersecting on the people index or on the tag label index or on the object index or all three. There's huge value in being able to sort of pivot on those things. Don't need to go into that much work because it's kind of obvious. A second bit, I'm going to go into a new example, a little more detail, something I was personally involved in, which is how do you create aggregate value from this sort of, um, what do we call it, the what we all know but hadn't got around to saying in public before? In other words, blogs. And so if you take the collection, there's 200 million blogs in the world, and they're growing rapidly. I think every two seconds a new blog is posted. Um, there is an enormous amount of talking about stuff going on. Uh, and that, in, in all of that, there is a huge amount of value if you could figure out how to grab it. And it turns out that I think the, the value comes when you add structure, a little bit of structure to it, and, and use it in the right way. So slide 23 introduces this idea, creating aggregate value from the structured data. So the problem here is that in a collective knowledge system, the, it's inherent in the system that as you get more value, as you add, excuse me, as you add more contributions of more people, it gets more valuable. And that's a nonlinear increase in value or increasing returns phenomenon if you can, in fact, um, tap into the computations that you can do over structured data. Because if you just think about words, if you just throw a bunch of words into a pile, there's only about 5,000 words, throwing away proper nouns, in the English language that actually that are unique, that have unique meanings that most people use in most dialogues. And after a while, when you get into the billions of web pages and so on, 5,000 words is not a whole lot of differentiating power for indexing all of the content on the web. However, there's an awful lot of, well, there's an infinite amount of possible structured data that one could uh, attach to content. And so it's that combination that gives us the ability to have some real, harvest, some real aggregate value. Now, I'm going to get concrete now in slide 24. I introduced a system, like I said, I worked on this system, um, about collective knowledge in the domain of travel. It's a site called realtravel.com that is commercially successful and has huge millions of readers and so on. And it is um, a very simple concept uh, that you aggregate the value of the experience of travelers so that when someone wants to take a trip, 
they can essentially ask the entire world uh, their advice on where to go and what to do. And that the trick here is, in fact, how do you ask the world? It's not how you gather it, because you could just use Google and find a bunch of people. Well, actually, there's two problems. How do you get people to say what they did on their trips? And then how do you harvest the value? Well, getting them to say what they do on their trips is, is uh, not really an ontology issue, but it's about user experience and graphic and visual design and things like that. But basically, you can make it a, a personally gratifying experience to post your trip with your photos and so on on the web. And that's what Real Travel did. But the other bit now is given that you can have you know, tens to hundreds of thousands of people writing about their trips all the time, how do you harvest value for the person who's planning a trip? So in slide 23, you can see um, a picture of one of the pages on Real Travel. This is a picture, this is a page on Bangkok, which is obviously a city in Thailand. It's also a travel destination. And there's, on the left hand, on the very top, you see a context that says, Bangkok is, you know, in the context, a breadcrumb that says Bangkok is, by the way, in Southeast Asia. It's in Thailand, which is in Southeast Asia. And there are also, by the way, there's a couple of cities nearby, like Ceylon, which is nearby Thailand and geographically nearby. And they also have content. And then on this particular point in the sort of destination hierarchy, there are various kinds of information you might get. You might get a travel guide or a map. You might get uh, photos. In this case, we're looking at the letter of an index into blogs, and of the hundreds and hundreds of blogs on Thailand, these are the rank-ordered, highly, most highly rated ones. And each of these blogs, of course, goes to an entire page with photos and trip descriptions and so on, what this person did in Bangkok. Okay. Now, what this is for is this, uh, this page is a, an aggregation page. In other words, nobody designed, nobody manually put this page together. This page emerged as people simply said, well, I went on my vacation, and on day three we went to Bangkok and we did this stuff. And then by another process, a set of people reviewed that uh, and said, you know, that was a really good description of what to do in Bangkok. I'm going to give it a high number. And by those two processes, it emerged as one of the top blogs on Bangkok. Okay. And then that leads to value. Because now if I am thinking about a trip to Thailand, first of all, I can see that there's some great examples of trips to, Thailand, to Bangkok. I also can pivot sideways and go, oh, well, if I like that story about Bangkok, let me see all the photos of Bangkok to see what it's like there. Or let me see the hotels that are in Bangkok that are highly rated and so on. Okay. Now, on slide, the next slide, whatever, is 26. Um, we see the simple advantage, the simple emergent property of Combining structured data and unstructured data in this domain is what I call pivot browsing, which is essentially you take, you could browse any of these blogs like any other web page and follow arbitrary links, but you could also pivot, that is, go along a structured index. And the structured data are what? Location. Like you can go up and down in a, in a geopolitical hierarchy, or you can go laterally in a distance hierarchy, a geospatial. You can go uh, all the blogs by a person. You can go all the blogs of a given type, all the blogs on a certain date, and so on. Or all the and what we're looking at now is rank ordered by quality, human ranking. Okay. The the key to this whole thing is one example is that destinations are a key structured data point here. And without that structure, these would ne you would never be able to do this pivot browsing. In fact, in page 27. 
the next slide we see uh, what is it six different services that are enabled by the fact that all this unstructured data is strongly hooked into a destination database and for instance um, you can you can uh, show your trip on a map, a dynamically generated map, with everything from Google satellite data all the way to um, MSN um, uh, atlas, you know, descriptions of, of the, all the towns and so on that are nearby. Um, dynamically generated maps that you can print out and have take and so on. You can also index into travel guides that are published by companies like Frommers and all that, which is only possible if you know exactly where you are in the world. Now, that is an example of, if you didn't, the, the structured and unstructured combined. Another example on page 28, just real quickly, is combining it with our other discussion of tags. That if we, by combining tags and structure, we were able to get a kind of tagging, which is called contextual tagging, that was never possible with just raw tags. Uh, I'll, slide 29 is a screen dump of such a thing. This is an example of all the tags uh, about Thailand. So, for instance, there's beaches in Thailand, there's diving in Thailand, there's golf in Thailand, there's uh, adventure in Thailand, and so on. And those words are essentially the tag, like the tag adventure, uh, sort of joined with or cross-indexed with the destination hierarchy. So you might say adventure in Bangkok implies adventure in Thailand. Okay. Uh, 30, the next screen dump, you'll see the example of beach. Beach in Thailand and here are, all the, here are all the top logs that are uh, tagged with the word beach. Okay. Now, here's a power. This is an emergent thing. If there's, there are literally you know, hundreds of thousands of these kinds of blogs, and if you were trying to just use search engine to find what are the beaches like in Thailand, you would, have, you would get a lot of noise. But this is 100% uh, accurate because it's done with a combination of the word beach, which is a controlled vocabulary, or it's not really controlled, but it's a tag that's very popular and therefore, therefore easy to find and use, combined with a structured data set, which is a destination. Okay. A third thing which I've never talked about in public before is page 31, which is on top of those two features, we were able to, uh, those kind of structured data, we were able to make a recommendation engine, kind of an expert system that would ask people um, what kind of things they're interested in and then recommend places for them to go. And slide 32 shows the output of this. This is actually my own. It, I, I took the quiz, uh, the interview, and I said, well, here's my interest. Here's my age group. Um, here's the kind of stuff I like to do. And where should I go in the world? And it told me I should go to the Galapagos Islands. It turns out that has, is my, like one of my fantasy trips I've always wanted to do. And the machine didn't have any rules, and it says if you are, you know, this age of male and you have been diving before, go to places that have the word diving in their tag or whatever. It was completely driven in a unsupervised learning bottom-up from the actual blog data and the tag data about uh, people's trips. So in other words, it found that people were like me and had interests like me, had been to the Galapagos and reported that they had a good time. So that's interesting. I'm really excited about that because all of a sudden now we can combine the best of sophisticated machine learning and expert system technologies that use uh, both structured and unstructured data and combine that with this, this huge um, wealth of user-contributed data, in this case, people's travel experiences. And this, doesn't, this is obviously not just about travel. You can do it for all kinds of domains. Okay. So stepping back a second, back to the whole now semantic web and ontologies business and why we're using this as an example of a collective knowledge system. 
is that, you know, we did this at Real Travel without Semantic Web, and it took way too much effort and um, expense. This was done as a commercial venture. It had you know, raised funding and so on. Um, and part of the reason was that there was no semantic web source or ontology with data attached to it for destinations. And we had to license a commercial product and do a lot of work on it. There were also, um, to integrate with travel guides, for instance, we had to do a point-to-point -point API integration with a proprietary namespace because there, was, there were no standards to use. There were no standards to use to share tag data. There was no easy way, for instance, to, to mash up other people's tag data that had any meaningful sense to it. You know, like, you know, does the word beach, the string beach, mean this, you know, have anything to do in another context with someone else? All right? Or who are all these users in other places? How do they relate to users in real travel? And so on. All right? So there's all kinds of things that the semantic web could have made, could have accelerated this development quite a bit, and also could have made it so that there can be lots more sites that are collective intelligence sites that don't require um, the funding and so on and the time and personnel to make happen. Now, on the other side, on the positive side, there's stuff that we can learn from, from the web, the social web, and apply to our ontology world. And on 34, we see what some of those are. Uh, first of all, uh, the fact is that even though it's, we had to raise money and have a company and so on, the amount that we raised and the number of people working on this was an order of magnitude if not two, smaller than uh, the last company I worked on, which was Enterprise Software for Collective Intelligence. And the difference was partly because the kind of tool sets that are available now are unbelievable in the free open source world. And it's almost like the ecosystem is saying, if you are not part of this culture, you will, your organism will not thrive in this ecosystem. You will fail. But if you can use this, you can turn it around and become very powerful with a small amount of work. Now, this may seem really obvious, but take it to heart. Think about it. And in our ontology world with all this, you know, uh, owl and blah, 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 stuff that we're pushing around, are we actually making it way easier to, 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 um, to buy than to build? In other words, way easier to reuse than to re reinvent. And I'm not sure it's that way yet uh, in the semantic web. The other thing is that there were open APIs, and there were commercially available things that we could use. It doesn't have to be free. It has to be sort of, you know, the kind of things the standards would enable. Okay. Now, last two slides really are about the title of the talk, delivering on that. Well, if take, take the perspective I've offered you today, and we're going to start talking, discussing this live in a second, right? But the perspective is what? Design. Ontologies are technology. Ontologies are designed. They're designed for a purpose. They can be designed with an engineering methodology. And they're designed for functions, to enable functions, to enable applications. What kind of applications? Well, in general, I like uh, collective intelligence uh, as an application space, but there are lots of others. But that's a really rich space. And in, within that space, what are the kind of grand challenges for ontologies that would really be the high payoff challenges? If we could see First of them, I'm just going to go through each one of the six of them here. First is, look, why do we have to say that when you build on top of a system like Delicious Wikipedia, we have to screen scrape the things and, um, you know, just hope for the best that the words that we're coming up with mean something. There's really no, I mean, we, if we made it easier to build on top of a semantic web infrastructure than to just write HTML by hand or whatever, then it, we could really add structure. 
And if you added real structure, and there are, there are efforts to do that, like semantic wiki or whatever, there's a bunch of things like that. Um, that that would be the grand challenge. Essentially, the next version of Wikipedia and Delicious and Flickr and so on, uh, containing structured data that's exposed to semantic web. The second one is, as I already mentioned, obviously tag spaces and tag data sharing, which I'm personally trying to drive now. And I think this is going to happen. I think we're going to see the infrastructure. The question is, can we have the impact on the world? Can we, in fact, influence those who have tag data? Um, Another one is obviously from the real travel experience, um, and I'm going, that's why I'm going to Edinburgh for next week is to speak at a geospatial conference, geospatial semantics conference. And the idea here is that, hey, you know, geospatial data is really truly, uh, you know, domain independent. I mean, it's, you know, the notion is pretty uh, universal, and yet we have tons and tons of smokestack silos of uh, ways of thinking about it. Let's think about what are the common semantics, and can we come to some agreements on that? Um, the other thing that the FOF group and other people are working on is this portable user identity. Uh, this is an unsolved problem. It's a very interesting large problem, and I'm glad that Tim Berners-Lee and folks are behind it at W3C because it's, it's definitely a problem that you can't leave to the vendors because they will all fight for hegemony in that space. Um, rating and filtering. That is the part of the notion of what makes the Web 2.0 world uh, uh, interesting is that anything from a camera to a, a PDA to a trip to France to um, which consulting firm to hire, all of those things are now amenable to um, collective knowledge, feedback on experience with those things. And we could really move the bar on the web if we could make these, the notion of what's being rated uh, and what is the rating and who's doing the rating, those key concepts. If those could be made as structured data as opposed to just string matching, then we've we got a big thing. And finally, the biggest sort of mother load, or the, the, big, the mother of all these applications is essentially semantic search. Now, that can mean a lot of different things, but if you think about it, I would say the grand challenge here is that we are now in the Google era, which is we're run and we're, we're we're exhausting the Google era of technology, which is basically, um, you know, a, 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 a an ecosystem based on a monopoly control over an indexing algorithm that defines an ecosystem, defines a set of plain rules which are not written down that are continually being uh, evolved against by a large distributed population of people trying to do optimization against search engines. This world is inherently antagonistic, uh, adversarial, and it cannot, um, it, it is not going to produce an optimal result. Uh, unlike a marketplace, which is inherently adversarial, but it's got an open set of rules, um, and the information is open in both directions. It's not true of the search world. So even though it's markets or wisdom of clouds technology, and so is sort of the Google long tail approach, the Google long tail plans was going to run out of steam unless we come up with a notion of the semantic connection between a query and a, and a hit in some meaningful way. Otherwise, we'll just lose the war of signal versus noise. Okay. Now, those are the grande. Now, I, if you, if you, I literally went to the web to find out definitively whether which is larger, Vente or Grande. I can never remember the difference, but apparently Vente is bigger. Um, so these are now if we step one back, level back up and higher and get the air a bit thinner, what are the Vente challenges? Well, look, the generalization of this concept is, hey, 
we think that ontologies and semantic web and all that stuff is good because we believe that human knowledge is powerful and useful. And so, you know, that's the next Nobel Prize. Tap the collective intelligence of the planet. The second thing is kind of like that, but it doesn't have to be quite so grand. And that is, hey, you know, let's do a hundred different real travels. If you ever wanted to travel, ask the world for experience. If you ever try to hire someone, ask the world for their experience. If you ever try to buy a product or um, even, you know, play a musical instrument, ask the world for their experience. And let's do that in a way that isn't a research project plowing through search results and noise and spam, okay? And finally, the challenge, which may be the hardest one for this community, is how does this community full of these people who are really smart and really get the technology deep of, of logic and symbolic reasoning and so on, how do we get real with the actual world of the web right now? Because that world is extremely exciting and powerful. And it, we can join the train and make the train go faster, or we can be left behind. Right? So I'll leave you with a pretty picture in slide 37. Um, this, the left picture is, in fact, um, tag data. It's the social web today. It is graffiti. Uh, the, the, the noise end of tag, tagging is spray painting. That's where the word came from, people spray painting their names on walls. And um, that's what you, have, you could have today. And on the right is an example of a collaborative wall mural done by similar artists with similar technology, but they work together. And they had a plan, and they had a leader, and they had a notion of results that was good. And they produced beauty. So I'm hoping that's what we can, what we can do. Okay. So it's been a while. It's time for you to talk. Thanks for your attention. Thank you, Tom. Uh, that was great. I mean, we have been grappling for applications, and in one breath you gave us two pages of killer uh, So let's see who has their hands up. Is this a name? Okay, this number? is Steve Ray. Can you hear me? Yes, yes, we can hear you. Go ahead, Steve. Okay, hi. Really interesting talk. I love these kinds of thought-provoking talks. Um, what, right at the very end, when you were talking about the Vente challenges, do you think that the vision you're painting is in, in any way a, an alternative to one of the granddaddy challenges people talk about, which is question answering on the web, or do you see question answering as part of this picture? Yeah, that's a good question. I, 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 I think it's pretty straightforward to me. It, it's question answering is a means to the end of the bullet two in Vente challenges, which is it's a way of getting access. It's a technology you could use to give everyone the experience of everyone else's, you know, benefit of everyone else's experience. Um, I guess I was seeing it because question answering obviously is going to require a whole bunch more reasoning capability on the part of a computer yeah. uh, as opposed to perhaps uh, following well-worn paths which, in which that reasoning is already implicit by following other people's experience. Yeah, you could do it either way. I mean, an interesting thing, there was a um, – about 10, 12 years ago, there was a research program – uh, by um, Mark Ackerman down at USC called the Answer Garden. He started out at Tom Malone's group at MIT. And the Answer Garden was an interesting twist on this question-answer thing. Maybe, maybe many of you know about it. Uh, the idea was uh, go to a sort of collective knowledge base, um, go in, do a query or search, see what, what anyone else has done with this already. But then if, if there's no answer, leave a question 
and and then and then you know it'll be allocated to a person you know be routed to a person to answer it and the question would be in the form of extending the tree that's why it's a knowledge garden or answer garden that is you would go walk down sort of a decision tree kind of structured questioning process and then at the leaf of the tree if your question really wasn't there yet when you left your question it would be sort of self-indexed into the tree into the right spot um, also it involves some nice um, you know uh, reasonable simple but straightforward parsing because when you enter enter the question you could enter it in sort of a, a sort of a stylized format so it could be easily searched and indexed this is a good example of a mix I mean mark is an AI person uh, but he built um, this this thing based on the realization that hey you know if you structure the input then you can structure then you can simplify the processing of that in the data to produce interesting output right so question answering it might be like that maybe I hear actually I'll give you another example I don't want to go on but it's actually a deep principle I call it uh, snap to grid so when you enter say a travel blog experience and real travel you don't type a string in to say what city you visited. You use an interactive um, uh, in interface that you cannot enter something unless it's a real place. And it, and it shows you on the map and so on. And we make sure we have the database of all places in the world so that you are literally snapping your your experience to the grid of place, real known places in the world. Mm -hmm. And that's the same thing with answer, question answer. You can snap into a place where the question belongs. And that's a way of getting structured data in there. So to summarize, I mean, essentially, yeah, I think that's one of the technologies, question answering is one of the technologies that we could um, use to get this thing. But, you know, I'm a scruffy guy in a sense. I mean, I've done my axioms with Pat Hayes and everything, but I also believe that, um, you know, when you pay attention to the goal rather than the technology, you, you can sometimes save yourself a lot of trouble by just combining, using simpler things. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you, Steve. Uh, we have uh, another question from someone uh, with the 757 area code. Uh, if you press a star three and unmute yourself, then uh, please announce, uh, identify yourself and speak up. Hi, 757. Hopefully you can hear me. This is Tom uh, no, you're very soft. Can, can you speak much louder? Okay, how about this? Don Conklin from Lockheed Martin. Okay, yes, go ahead. Okay, well, I can think of a half dozen questions easily off the bat. Let me start with a simple one. You talk about all these people's data that you're then going to basically discover your answers from, but what about finding and rejecting bad data? Yeah, Don, that's a good question. Well, it all depends on it's good or bad relative to what function, you know? Um, I, Signal to noise, it's an engineering problem, right? I, there's no general answer to that, but it, it depends on what your function is, right? So maybe you have an, an application in mind. What do you well, think? Well, I mean, people are making all these, you know, I'm not all that conversant with the travel domain, but, you know, people making inputs, you're going to land up with X percent of people that are uh, are ill-intended, put it that way. And oh. so you're going to land up with, with data that is, is clearly uh, not correct. And being able to find that, I mean, in this... In that domain, it's not all that terrible. You're probably not going to go to the wrong resort. But if it was another domain that was perhaps more mission critical, it could be important. Oh, clearly. No, it even is in travel. Um, the, the sort of the dominant player in that, uh, in that space is a place called TripAdvisor. 
um, which has become so popular at reviewing hotels that it's um, literally a um, it's a it's a um, what do they call it? What's uh, the word for it in economics? Um, it's a liquidity market for reviews. There's so much liquidity in the reviews that you can't. Uh, there's always a review on any hotel, and the reason for that is that there's no uh, there's no friction to adding one, um, and that means that there's no authenticity. There's no way to know whether it's real or not. Absolutely no way to know, other than just using your human judgment, reading the words. Um, and so that something has to be done to overcome that. And in the in, and uh, what one of the things that we did at Real Travel is we have a human review process. That now, like you say, it, it scales and it only scales in certain levels, right? But um, you could imagine uh, automated screening. I mean, this is essentially fraud detection. Uh, and fraud detection technologies from credit cards to Google spam detection to, you know, military, you know, uh, intelligence, whatever. There are the set of fraud detection technologies that essentially um, do automated things up front and to sort of, you know, screen out or do, maybe do um, pick out the potential candidates for fraud, and then there's human review after that. And I'm not an expert in fraud detection, but, but you know, Many of you probably are. That's what I. That's how I would characterize that. So bad data is just signal noise, and um, you know you invest more money to get cleaner data, right? But on the other hand, I, I maybe behind what you're saying is, should we ever trust users, or should we ever trust you know massive distributed content? And I think that um, the experience of the web has been, oh my, my goodness, we would ignore it at our peril, and it's so much value in having a thousand eyeballs on something. Well, I generally agree with that, although I think that there's a pickoff point that, you know, there's a certain percentage of bad data which then tips the entire corpus to being really questionable. Oh, agreed. Yeah, yeah, and I'll completely, I mean, look what happened with Google. I mean, Google has been gamed so badly in some domains, not in most, you know, but in many places, like travel, you know, it's hard to find a good result in Google and travel. Because it's game. Okay. So, yeah. yeah, um, you ha yeah. I have a couple more, but I mean, I will yield the floor to, to other people, but maybe if there's time, you can come back to me. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, good, good question. Thanks, Don. Uh, I have also have Mustafa Jara from uh, the Netherlands, uh, who has his hands up. Mustafa, uh, if you do a star three and speak up, you might have to speak slowly. I know. Do you hear me now? Yes. Great, uh, you're coming through uh, very well. Uh, yeah. Well, thanks for the talk. Actually, it's very interesting uh, to see the synergy between the semantic web and the social web. Uh, that's very interesting. But to, what is actually I didn't get a point is uh, uh, after we after uh, to me define the ontology as justification for centralization. So I really wonder now what is the definition, the definition of the ontology, or let's say. What's really, how, how important semantics is now? Because this could help us to understand application of this new, nation, uh, new uh, notion of ontology better. Thank you. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Mustafa and Peter, I couldn't really hear half the words there. Was, was the question? Uh, so the, the question is now, uh, 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 first you define the ontology as specification of conceptualization, which was a very formal notion. We understand uh, exactly what, uh, what was that. But uh, now, since you revisit this definition to introduce the collective intelligence, uh, 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 
apply it for social for the social web. So, it, it, which kind of semantics now in the social web do you think? Oh, and okay. What is the definition of ontology? Yeah, I think if the question is, you know, essentially, originally, I talked about ontology as uh, a specification of a conceptualization and used for the purpose of of enabling knowledge sharing, and that is exactly the same sense in which I'm talking about it now. The interesting thing is when you combine it with social web, like take the tag ontology, for instance, um, it's the group tag commons is not to, trying to come up with a set of tags that people can reuse. There are tag space efforts that might do that, but that's not what the ontology is for. Um, the, I mean, that would be, in fact, kind of, I think, a waste of time because the whole point of Folksonomy, the uh, bottom-up tagging, is because you want you want a lot of people to um, independently label something and, and then learn from that labeling activity. So ontology is still the conceptualization part of tagging. Is what does it mean to be a tagger? What does it mean to be a tagged object? And what does it mean to be a tag label? And what are the relationships among those three kinds of concepts and the sources of tags and things like that? Those, that's the theory behind, and that's the part that we're trying to, to specify in ontology. So I think, that, ironically enough, staying true to that engineering discipline on what ontology is um, has helped guide our, our discussions about the how to enable the social web data exchange on tech. Is that, is that getting at the question itself? Uh, yeah, well, I think so, but this actually proves uh, that it is not extensional, uh, the notion of conceptualization, because uh, we refer now, what I, see, what I guess I understood, is that when we refer to labels of tags, we refer to the uh, linguistic, uh, to more like to linguistic labels, which has an intended meaning more than uh, uh, extensional uh, semantics. Oh, right. Now, so that's... Again, the tag ontology that we're trying to define, the domain of discourse for that ontology um, does not include the whatever it is that tags refer to. So if someone says beach in Thailand, um, the word beach does not occur in any ontology, ontology in my book. The word beach is a, set of, is a piece of data, and it happens to be a string in English, but it, that's just a piece of data. Now, its meaning is in relation to the fact that um, Tom said there, this blog is about beaches and the blog is about Thailand mm -hmm. and that's the semantics I'm working on so extensionally I mean I don't I don't personally I want to get involved in the debate about whether tags denote things or not because that's sort of like it's kind of irrelevant to the collective intelligence problem for tag data um, it's not a library science problem it's not in fact in fact I wrote this piece on this maybe some of you guys seen it uh, called it, where ontology of folksonomy. You can Google ontology of folksonomy and see the paper, which I actually debunk a popular myth um, by a famous blogger who says that tagging shows that ontologies are kind of a dumb idea uh, because he basically confused two different notions. And so okay, I, I thank just you. refer to that paper. Yeah. yeah thank you. Okay, uh, I don't see other hands up, but uh, I want to, uh, first of all, again, uh, apologize to Pat, because originally I actually had uh, 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 hoped that uh, had 
for Pat Hayes to give an introduction of Tom. The reason why uh, that happened was because uh, I have been trying to hook up with Tom for months and was not able to do it. And then Pat made a post on Ontolog Forum, and I wrote him, and I said, please put me in touch. And Pat did the magic. Uh, like 15 minutes later, I was on the phone with, with Tom. And on that, I really thank Pat for making this happen. Of course, I thank Tom for uh, giving this talk, which is extremely interesting. Uh, I have a question here, Peter Yim here. Uh, obviously, we are in the middle of the uh, Ontology Summit 2007. And given the fact that the Ontology has evidently has more formal ontologists than it has foxonomists. Uh, we don't have a lot of discussion from the perspective of the foxonomist. I mean, uh, and with this, I mean, may I request Tom to maybe help start a discussion or at least bring in, I mean, given that, I mean, this talk of yours also uh, comes from that direction is to start some dialogue uh, or bring in your friends who are in the taxonomy uh, uh, constituency uh, to at least add to the discussion and to the dialogue on uh, how do we clarify the distinctions between an ontology, a uh, taxonomy, a taxonomy, or anything in between. Yeah, sure. We can. I can uh, point it to people. I I would encourage us to. Um Make comments on people's blogs, thing, um, or send you know, or, or blog about it yourself. That the blogosphere is where those folks w live, and mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, so that's the way to engage them. Um, I mean, it, it shouldn't be that complicated. I mean, I, you know, that's why I wrote the little piece uh, on tells you folks on me. The distinction is not that complicated. Uh, what I think is really where the heat is here, yeah, where the energy is, is the um, the cultural difference. That we need to be aware of, you know, that of course there are there are applied physicists and theoretical physicists, and there are applied computer scientists and theoretical computer scientists. There's not a better or worse, you know, they're different. On the other hand, that in computer science in particular, in AI as well, you know, we've we've really benefited from having um, a close collaboration with folks who build. So I would encourage us to find to study what people have actually done. I mean, find some of those twenty-year-old programmers out there and the work that they have done on mashups, on tags, and go, what does that mean about our ontology effort, you know? Great. So, yes. anyway. Yes. Please maybe make a post to ontology summit, uh, the listserv, and start a conversation there. Bring okay. Well, people. public shame works pretty well, Peter, so that's good. Good, good <laughs> idea. <laughs> Okay, uh, let me check once again to see if there are hands up. Uh, Don had some more questions. Oh, yes, let's go back to Don. Don? Okay, can, uh, can you hear me now? Yes, please. Okay, um, it seemed like a, a lot of uh, what you were talking about was basically discovery of information, I mean, various ways to gather it up and then, and then go find something. But I, I didn't hear, or maybe I just missed in the discussion, um, are more along the line of, of constructing fairly sophisticated models to put these representations in and then doing analyses of the uh, of the relationships between them or the changes in relationships to discover additional uh, 
uh, facts that we didn't know before that may be may be quite important in the particular domain of discourse. Do you have any any comment on that uh, that sort of work? You're saying as opposed to a descriptive model um, of existing data, um, a, a more uh, like design a new kind of model that we could use to build new kinds of data collection. Well, it, it's a series of descriptive models. That, for instance, they're domain data just describing what's out there. Then a model of functional interdependencies of selected instances of those domains, and then uh, a model of event interdependencies that affect those functional interdependencies. Yeah, so well, we're, we're, a, what do you have in mind? What but, kind of applications are you thinking about? Um, well, it can be, it's really ubiquitous. And it, I mean, it could be used everything from disaster relief to financial analysis. So the idea that you can, can look at the events that are occurring, how that changes the relationships of these functional interdependencies, which then changes the, the values of various instances in your domain ontologies. Okay, yeah. I mean, so the modeling, um, well, for instance, I, you know, there's some work, as you, and you're familiar probably, the folks who do uh, financial news analysis, um, they'll do, um, you know, kind of um, uh, entity extraction from news sources and so on and from SEC filings and all that and identify uh, the relationships between companies and technologies and industries and, and stocks and things like that, right? And they'll build a rich model and then they'll be productive on that model. So you can certainly do that with any, any of these domains. Um, the question... Let me let me help you help me help me frame this in terms of the. Today's I, I guess I'm not hearing much discussion about this. This is an area that I've been working in for for a while, and to understand that you know uh, some time ago, uh, one of the, the storm blew one storm blew through and wiped out the Colonial Pipeline, which supplies the East Coast with gasoline by, by and large, and the way that effect ripples through the economy, ripples through you know diesel supplies to hospital emergency generators and. Uh, which hospitals will go out first, which ones will have to stop, which trauma centers will have to shut down, and, and on and on and on. But being able to understand that, you know, this particular action has these sorts of influences across all sorts of domains, from, from the price of food to, to whether or not you can go to the ER in your local hospital. Mm -hmm. So what you're saying is that, I guess implicitly, there's a, if we could model what's happening out there, um, in the world that we can gather data from news in the web and so on. If we could model things in a more domain, cross-domain way, things like events and uh, dependencies, functional dependencies and that kind of thing, then we could right. do more global, yeah. Well, sure. I, um, I guess I, I'm a little surprised. Just I, I don't. Uh, I was down at ISWC 2006 and you know heard everybody speak and went to as many sessions as I could and uh, just just not hearing anything about this kind of an approach. Well, I think it's a grand, it is a grand challenge. Underlying the whole semantic web vision is that if everybody just sort of posted their little piece of the puzzle of structured data, then, then there can be classes of computation like this that could never be done before. So, you know, like say, let's just take something simple like you're talking about functional dependency. Um, now, it isn't going to be the website about the weather that's going to post the functional dependency. The weather site's going to post data about weather, but if it posts it in some relatively efficient format, you know, for, for structured data format, and then someone else, um, you know, for instance, where the notion of time is clear and the notion of location is clear, then um, someone else might do something about prices of oil, you know, uh, or gas, natural gas or whatever, and that's another structured piece. 
And then those, if those are exposed to the semantic web, then there could be reasoning about that, the global dependencies. And I, I agree, that's part of the vision of the semantic web. And uh, maybe we didn't talk about it. It hasn't been talked about it as much. I think it's, it's a real, it's a very large problem. And it's not really collective intelligence. I've just been, ang I've just been hammering on this collective intelligence because I think it's low-hanging fruit for us. But it's not the only way to use the semantic web. Well, I, I agree. I think that's the low, you know, the low-hanging fruit is the, the stuff that's going to populate those domain ontologies. But uh, then these these other more abstracted layers are going to sit on top of that. Yeah. Well, I would encourage you to drive that by the functionality that you can achieve. So, for instance, dependency analysis. You know, um, we used to do some work on that in engineering uh, in uh, at Stanford, and Lockheed was actually in Lockheed AI Center, and Palo Alto was one of the uh, participants. And we would think about how do you do how would you model functional dependencies in a very large engineering process? And, you know, there is some representational challenge there, you know, but there's, but it's more, the, the bigger challenge is really, hey, you know, um, who's going to give us that information? I mean, how are you going to capture the fact, the connection between, um, you know, a weather event and a, and a price change? And that's going to either be a theoretician who's got a model of how, like an economist, for instance, or it might be a machine learning process. You know that infers that relationship. I think that's to me that's that's an, uh, that's just pure research. There's unsolved problems there, and the semantic web is enabling for that, but not sufficient for that kind of technology. Well, I, I agree. I mean, when you when you have your even if you had all the ontologies in place and you had them populated and everything, you still need an extra ontological calculating capability to to uh, understand uh, to be able to calculate essentially the, the ripple effects through here, the, so that you know. There's more than six inches of rain in, in so many hours on a particular location, and there's a power plant in the, on that floodplain um, that it's going to get flooded. And then, and then, what's the ripple effect going to be of so many megawatts, you know, whatever, not being put on the grid, and on and on and on. Yeah. yeah. So, so you need that external capability that can take the essentially the static data and basically make it dynamic. So what I would do, you know, personally, like when I want to talk to the geospatial people next week, um, I'll, I might bring this example up. Like these are all pieces of the puzzle. You know, if you geospatial folks get your act together and be able to make a sort of, you know, a standard way to say in a structured way on a, in the semantic web way or whatever, you know, things about location and geopolitical hierarchy um, that anyone can buy into. And then someone over there, like the weather site, might be able to just use it, you know. And then someone over here in the um, civil, civil engineering planning board data manager or whatever, whoever it is where a power plant lives, you know, they, if they could just reuse those components, then we could have impact. And so there's sort of a bottom-up effort that there's, there's like components that semantic web people could contribute to the web and to the world that would enable these more, uh, you know, ambitious global reasoning tasks. Okay. Time for more? Yes. I'm, I'm okay. Sure. Okay. Yes. I'll, I'll just go ahead and throw this out. It's an ugly stink ball, but okay. Uh, upper level ontologies. Okay. What about do, 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 we need, do we need to resolve to, to us that, or does it matter? Oh. Uh, well, I mean, I don't know. If you guys have been, haven't been completely, you know, bored by what I've been saying, the high order bit is, hey, you know, let's take a functional engineering. Now, if if I'm doing a natural language parsing application uh, and I need 
to do word sense disambiguation based on meaning, um, then I have a functional engineering need to have a fairly broad uh, tree to hang an awful lot of knowledge about language. Uh, but won't that be the key of a natural language uh, entity extractor? It will need that capability in order it to might need it. level. Yeah, it might that, need. Like I said, word sense disambiguation is a hard problem, you know, and uh, and that's one of the approaches to doing it. And same thing with semantic search. You might need to, to, to make word sense disambiguation so semantic search could work, uh, and that would be a role for that. I would evaluate the need for it, and I would evaluate the quality of one ontology versus another purely on the basis of whether of a measurable uh, uh, result, uh, an output of an application that uses it. Well, okay, anyway, well, I, I understand, but I also yeah. think that the, the vast majority of information that we would dearly love to have marked up and available are not in databases, they're in text documents. Yeah. Yeah, sure. And, I agree. and so we're going to need that that you know ultra um, entity extractor that doesn't just do entities but does uh, events and relationships um, in order to achieve that. Sure. And I think those folks who do that kind of work, um, you know, they they should drive the effort. They should drive the, the design and, and implementation of those upper ontologies. They should collaborate with people who are ontologists if they aren't already themselves ontologists. And uh, and drive it because they'll tell you what you need to what distinctions you need to make, you know. Like for instance, the I mean, I'll, I'll contrast it with the psych approach, and psych's still around, um, as you guys know. And and psych's a very interesting. It's a counter uh, hypothesis. Uh, the hypothesis of psych, uh, at least it used to be. I haven't talked to Doug in years, um, but it used to be that, um, you know, it's sort of a critical mass thing. If you throw enough stuff into a big pile and you have a process um, that's sort of coherent for adding stuff to the pile, you have a quality process of some kind uh, that ensures internal coherence, then you will eventually get enough stuff that you'll be able to, more often than not, you know, uh, match a problem. And I thought they uh, had changed their course fairly substantially from, from, you know, tons and tons and tons of axiom to a, a much, much smaller number. Well, maybe, that's, maybe they have something else. Have you, can someone report on it? I don't know. I'm saying that that hypothesis, maybe they, maybe they decided that hypothesis wasn't holding up. Um, so the uh, last thing I heard was something like 6,000 axioms is what they're trying to revolve around now. Okay. So I'm no expert on that. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, so the quick trick is which 6,000, and, uh, you know, I would assume that it's being driven by more than, you know, just whether they can get new grants. You know, uh, I mean, it's probably driven by application. So um, that's the way I'd go about it. And the question is, that, you know, is it going to be, do you want to have a resource like that as a, as a commercial product? Or do you want it to be an open thing? And so, example, like at my destination database, I, you know, we had to license commercial uh, data, even though eventually they all come from the CIA database. But the CIA database is not maintained uh, in the way that, you know, it's not that it has some issues that, that aren't quality issues. So there are several layers of value add that the companies have put on top of it. And also it's not integrated with anything else like, you know, map data and so on. So we had to license it. Now, it also meant that, you know, there's a maintenance headache and, and there's, you know, quality issues because only a single company is maintaining this particular database. So it would be much nicer if we had a public one. The same thing here. If we had a public resource for word sense disambiguation uh, that had at its core an ontology, uh, all the better, you know. Well, you're, you're preaching to the choir, and, it, and, I mean, as ISWC, Tim said that the foundational stuff is should be open source and IP gets applied to the, to the – 
higher level stuff that rides on the foundational stuff, but that's not a concept that's well understood outside of that room. Mm. I hear you. Other folks? Mustafa has uh, his hands up, so Mustafa, go ahead. Uh, I actually invaded the room for a question. Uh, I would like to, to say that, uh, uh, or to ask also that, uh, yes, there are some open uh, source uh, semantic spaces that we can use, which are, uh, for example, WordNet or WordNets now, because there is a lot of uh, versions of, of, of WordNets in different languages. So we are, why, why we are not just you know, committing our vocabularies to that source uh, 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 and use it as a shared vocabulary space for, for all, uh, all schemes? I mean, I myself, actually, I suggested that ontologies should not be built just like this, the way we build them now, but each vocabulary in the ontology should be linked or rooted with a, 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 a sense or a concept or a word sense in, in WebNet. Is it not enough for, for, for the purposes we are looking for? Well, I think that's a great, great point. I mean, there is a thing called WordNet, and it is a, it is a semantic net of, of language kind of information, of language distinctions. And so uh, why wouldn't one reuse it? Well, it's just, I mean, it's like it's a resource, and either it's adequate for a task or not. I happen to, um, you know, know some some projects that that um, use it as one of their data sources for word sense disambiguation and for um, semantic search, but it's not enough by itself. It has its own properties. Uh, the, the, it's just a resource. Uh, there can be lots of ontologies, and they can flourish in a competitive ecosystem. Uh, here's an example. I can attack on, but I, I, I agree with them. The, the ethos of this is there's, you know, this notion that we would kind of reinvent and, and try to push for a particular approach at exclusion of others. Um, it, it's, it, it's a way to get tenure, maybe, or whatever, but I, I don't, it doesn't really solve the problem. And most people in the world, practical, don't have time for that. But an example of sort of playing well together is in the tag stuff, um, in the tag ontology, there is. Um, the, one of the people who did this, did an early version of this, they explicitly said, look, if you're going to bridge to an existing thing, there's a thing called Dublin Core, which is a, a control vocabulary system. So why not try to, you know, make this kind of an extension of the mechanisms of that? Now, I don't go into all the details of what that means, but the ethos is the same, that, yes, bridge to things if you can. Um, it's, it's just like open source software. People usually build on open source software, even if it doesn't completely solve their problem. Um, but WordNet in particular, Mustafa, is not is is a is has its idiosyncratic properties. It's useful for certain kinds of things, but not others. So it's really not necessarily it's not really a backbone for, like for instance, it, it wouldn't help me with my concepts for uh, identity, human identity, or with time or geolocation. Those are these are dif those are different conceptualizations. So those are those are those are why they have they need to have extent. Their specialized theory codified in an ontology. Well, from if we need really social web, uh, because web must represent the community uh, uh, agreement on, on the use of the, of the vocabulary. So actually, if your concept is, is uh, uh, will be communicated uh, with many people, okay. I mean, probably you should have new uh, or extend web with a new uh, sense. But if this is very specific, then uh, 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 it is not a social uh, activity. In my opinion. 
I think I understand what you're saying now. I, I agree. Again, again, it goes back to the distinction between an ontology of the conceptualization of tag data and, a conceptual, and an ontology of the words in tag, you know, the tag words that people use. And in, um, it would be an interesting experiment, and it may be already being done, if you produce the tagging system, which heavily biased you towards words that already exist in WordNet. So like it would do kind of a completion interface or something, so that it'd be much easier to reuse a word in WordNet than to type in a new word of your own. Okay? And to see whether when you gave someone an interface like this, they would snap to grid. And therefore, mm -hmm. produce something much, I mean, I think it would be a great idea. We found, for instance, in, in real travel that um, we, we, had, um, we were able to bias the tagging so that there was convergence. But we consciously did it. I mean, most of the web tag tagging sites don't do that. Most tagging sites um, would rather uh, collect arbitrary strings and then match them and cluster them. Mm. And it's just a different, uh, different approach. Thank you. Uh, thank you, everyone. Uh, well, uh, it has been a great talk in a huge crowd and again on behalf of the Ontolog Forum uh, I thank Tom for being with us today and uh, this adjourns the session. Thank you all. Bye-bye. Thank you for your time and attention. Oh.